What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. I'm excited today to be welcoming Dr. Allison King to join us to talk about recommendation letters. We know that recommendation letters are a big part of uh, every applicant's journey to applying to a PhD program and to grants and everything else. So I hope that today's uh, conversation will help you answer some of those questions and think about different aspects of recommendations letters and how to do it strategically. So let's let's jump in. Um, Dr. King, would you mind giving a brief background about yourself and um, and your area of research? Sure. Well, first, I just want to thank Dr. Harris and Hoyt for inviting me uh, to join this podcast. I think it's um, a really important series of conversations to have for people who are early in thinking about their research careers or already in the careers. Um, so uh, I'm trained as a pediatric hematologist and oncologist, and uh, I also have a clinical research lab. I've originally focused on clinical research and um, some community-based research that included schools. And in the past uh, six to seven years, I've uh, engaged in training and practice research and implementation science. Um, So one of the benefits of that broad background in medicine, public health, education, is that I get to interact with a number of trainees and faculty And uh, I've been writing letters of recommendation for people entering all different levels of uh, school and training, and then as they're getting promoted through their careers. So I've been doing this for a bit now, and I think that I'm better at writing letters of recommendation now than I was when I started 20 or 25 years ago. Um, So I'm happy to talk about this for anybody who's interested in learning more. I feel like I'm super biased in in this and maybe feel like full disclosure up front. Kelly and I are both your mentees and have benefited from your expertise. And I've seen how great your letters of recommendation are and the tips that you've given us, you know, to make sure that we're presenting ourselves as in the strongest way that we can. So, you know, just jumping in, let's, I guess, take a step back and talk about, you know, what a letter is, when people get them and what they typically include. Um, so, so what is a recommendation letter and why might we need one? So I think this is, this varies based on what stage of your career that, um, you're in right now. So if you're a student and you're applying for say graduate school or a training program, you know, the letter of recommendation serves as a way to kind of, um, you know, vet you to the program that you're applying to. So if you're asking for these letters of recommendation, ideally you're asking people who really know you, 
you know, it may not just have a connection to a program or a school that you're interested in because a superficial letter is really not much better than a letter at all. So it's better if you're asking for a letter from someone who really knows you, knows about your skills or your education or whatever strength you may bring to the program that you're applying to. Um, if you're applying to a let's say a graduate school for a PhD program, it's helpful if that person has some understanding of how you've performed in whatever earlier form of uh, school or training that you were engaged in, and if you were productive in any way. So if you're applying for graduate school, it's always helpful if you've had some publications, but even if you haven't published, but you were active in some research projects that maybe are on their way to publication, then I think that that person could say some information that might be helpful to the school that um, is reviewing your application. The other thing is that if you're already um, done with training and let's say you're in an academic position, then you might be asking for letters of promotion or maybe you're applying for some type of scholarship or career development award. You're asking for someone to, again, you know, vouch for you to say that, you know, you're, you've been productive and that you're likely to excel. So um, that's great. I, I, I guess a question I have is, you know, a couple of questions I have. So the first, um, you mentioned that it's really important that these are people that know you, right? And some of us, I think, come to research either not having built the types of relationships that really would benefit us while going into a, you know, graduate school and into a doctoral degree or, or some kind of um, terminal degree, is it, can you then, you know, kind of provide a lot of supporting documents, a lot of information for folks who maybe don't know you as well, but are willing to write for you um, would be one question. Like, are there things, um, is that a kind of a strategy for folks who don't have perhaps a lot of people they can rely on? That know yeah, I think that that is a top strategy. So Especially if you don't have much experience in the area that you're going to go into, then provide a statement of why you're interested in that program. Help the person who's writing your letter help you. So typically, if you're applying to some type of graduate program or some training program, you have to provide a personal statement in addition to a CV or a biosketch. So that personal statements should be shared with whoever you're asking um, to write you the letter because they need some context about why you're so interested. So, so more than likely, the person who you're asking to write a letter is writing dozens of these every year. So what you want to do is make their job as easy as possible to quickly understand why you're applying, what strengths you bring to this, and what you hope to get out of it. So one thing that um, I don't find controversial, but some people do, is the question of, should you draft a letter for the person that you're asking the letter of recommendation um, from? So I think it might depend on the stage of your career. If you are coming out of college and you've never done this, then I think at a minimum, you should plan on providing a statement of why you're interested in whatever it is that you're applying for, as well as some summary about your education and your work history or 
research experience or, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in. Um, also provide the call for applications or the whatever it is that's announcing what you're applying for so that the person who's writing the letter has context because letters look very different based on what um, the reason for application is. So that's why even at an early stage, while it might be uncomfortable, it does help to write some part of the intro or um, write some section that helps that person set the stage for why you're applying to that program or that opportunity. If you're further in um, and you're actually already in graduate school or you're in training or you're junior faculty, then by all means, I think that you should take the time to draft some version of the letter. Number one, you know exactly what you're applying to. You should have read that call for applications and know what they're looking for so you can highlight it. And you can put the things that are really important to you down into that document so that the person who's writing the letter is going to edit and enhance it. But you know that the core um, pieces of information are there because nobody cares more about your career than you do. So help the person who wants to help you. I think that, that is sorry, Kelly. No, I have one more follow up. It's not yeah, really no, totally. Question. Um, and, and I guess I think about this also because I'm just thinking about like my own personal experience, right? I um I didn't think about coming out of my master's program, like a PhD was not even on my radar. So I didn't cultivate some of the relationships I probably should have that would have really been helpful for me. Um, and so, and, and I think I also thought like, you know, when professors would say, keep me posted on how you're doing, that they didn't really mean it, right? I now see things differently and realize that, A, I want to know how folks that I work with are doing and what they're doing later. So I would love for them to follow up. But like, it's kind of, I guess, I just want to highlight something I think that is kind of in what I'm hearing in your response is the importance of building their relationship and the communication before you need the letter so that folks know who you are and what you're doing and that like people really do want to know what you're doing and know what's going on even if it's just so that when you do ask them for a later a letter later they're not like who was that what did they do why you know um so I guess I just was thinking about that that kind of um laying the foundation for that for future um as I was listening so I there's not really a question in there um, I guess if you have anything to add about that, that would be great. But yeah, I guess. So my other follow up from that was I remember coming to graduate school with Allison King, actually, and being so surprised that there was an expectation of me to write my own letter. Um, that's just not a thing that I knew before in my life. And um, and so I think that's actually a really important point is that, you know, yourself best and you know what you're applying to. And everybody else is really busy and you can really help them help you. And by like laying the groundwork, like here's the link to what do I want to apply to? Here's my resume. Here's my prior experiences. Um, uh, that I guess, I'd, I guess my follow-up question is really like, when is it? It sounds like you, you laid it out as kind of aware you are in your training, but do you think that there's a method for how um, potential recommendation letter letters should be asked for? How do you like to be asked for? Like if, if I needed an, a recommendation letter, what would you expect to hear from me? I like someone to come to me with a lot of time in advance. The worst thing is if 
someone's applying to some program and something is due in 48 hours or less, and I'm being asked to provide a letter. Um, I think we've all been through these training programs that, you know, tell us that, you know, your emergency is not, you know, my emergency or your lack of poor planning does not become, you know, my emergency or my problem. Um, and, and, you know, you're asking someone to vouch for you that you're a high performing, deserving individual. And when you do that type of, um, you know, lack of planning and request, it sets a bad stage. So um, I won't say that I'm not guilty of that. Like I said, I've been doing this for a while and I've definitely made my share of mistakes that I've tried to learn from and pass on to uh, mentees to not do. But I think, you know, try to plan and have a conversation, you know, email the person and say, I'm, I'm considering or I'm planning on applying to this um, program, attach the announcement that, you know, clearly states what the criteria are. Um, and then just say, would, would you be willing to provide a letter of recommendation? Um, and then, you know, hopefully if you know the person well enough and they reply, yes, then you can immediately reply and say, um, I'm happy to provide the first draft of the letter for you to edit along with, you know, my CV or whatever supporting materials there are. Hopefully you're you're close enough to that person that you're comfortable enough to ask. I mean, I only know of one person who doesn't, um, take drafts of letters and writes them themselves. So it's just, it's a way of survival. I mean, I think that most of us who are faculty want to help other people, uh, but, you know, we all need a little bit of help and saving time and, you know, not having to look up answers or search PubMed, you know, help the person out. That's great. Um, I feel like you've already said so many things that are kind of important to a strong recommendation letter. Um, and, and I guess one of the other things I think about is that kind of learning to not be too humble and sell yourself in what you're providing or in the draft that you write. What other things really um, make a letter stand out? So I think um, in the opening, you know, usually what I do is I'll, um, you know, start with a statement of, you know, I'm writing or, you know, I offer the highest level of support or recommendation, whatever that, you know, the letter is for in providing the letter. Um, then I usually briefly introduce myself and, you know, some background to give the person who's reading the letter an understanding of what my experience is and how I know the person who, you know, I'm writing the letter for. But then as someone who's reading a letter and trying to figure out like, is this, is the person who's applying really help, you know, a good fit or um, are they a strong candidate? I usually look for some phrase of like the, so if I'm writing the letter, I try to say this person is in the top X percent of trainees within this field or, you know, the top 5% of, um, all the graduate students that I've worked with or, you know, and then explain, you know, how many students or types of students that I've worked with. 
But I think people want a comparison, particularly if you're not filling out one of these um, forms that usually has you check these types of things, because most programs, if they also have you fill out, you know, a checkbox, they try to have you break it down to the top 1%, top 5 to 10, top 25, whatever. So I think that those types of things are helpful. And then to have a paragraph about, you know, what you've accomplished. So if you've published, I like to see a, a condensed version of what the reference is. Um, if you're first author, you can start, you know, if the, if the applicant is the first author, you can start with their last name and the citation, um, just kind of weaving the story and explaining how that person has built their career. Now, obviously this doesn't always work when you're applying for a PhD school, if you came out of a clinical program or you have absolutely no experience, but then, um, you know, state something about what you did up until the time that you're applying that, you know, helps you stand out. So maybe they were, um, you know, things that you participated in and like helping to get, you know, project off the ground or leadership experience, something that helps you stand out. It sounds like you really mix in your recommendation letters. And, and I think I've observed this too, a mixture of personal connection, like this is what I've observed and, and how I've gotten to know this person with really objective facts for how those qualities can be measured or backed up, whether it's publications or participation in a particular program or, or something like that. And I think that is something that I, I think strengthens letters of recommendation from what I've learned anyways. Um, but I'm wondering, similarly to those kinds of things that strengthen it, like having those references included and having a personal connection there at the beginning and, and, and what can back that up, have you noticed anything that is like a mistake or makes a recommendation letter stand out as as being not as strong? <laughs> what makes so, it um, there are a few things that I'm sensitive to as a female investigator. Um, one thing that's not related to writing a letter of recommendation is when women speak, they tend to have this uptick. And so when they're speaking, everything that they're saying sounds like a question instead of a statement. And so, you know, from being in the lab, when we rehearse our public presentations, I'm a stickler. Now I'm getting over a virus, so I might sound a little monotone and you know, maybe not the most exciting public speaker, but the last thing that I want to do is sound like somebody who's in doubt and who's ending their sentences with that uptick. That's for some people, it's just a pattern of speech. But if you listen, inevitably, whoever is doing that seems to be taken less seriously than someone who speaks with a more definitive tone. So while this isn't about public speaking, I think that when you write a letter, there are some patterns that can lead to the same impression. So um, things that are really common in reading letters that have been provided for women as um, descriptions like so-and-so is so enthusiastic. They are the most caring person. They love children. <laughs> they are so warm and so conscientious 
And so if I stop there, I just ask myself, am I reading this about Fred down the street? I don't think so. So they, it's not always, but these things tend to be written about women. And so what I usually try to do is ask myself, are we talking about um, a man in the same way? And if it's not the case, you know, if I substituted out the applicant, you know, a male for a female, let's try to think of adjectives that are more helpful um, in describing what we're trying to get across. So, um, you know, knowledgeable, resourceful, you know, something like that, um, but not, not always the warm and fuzzy adjectives. And I will say that probably in my early years of writing letters, I probably included some adjectives like that when I wrote letters for myself, you know, for someone else to edit. And it was only with time that I got better about, you know, drifting away from that. And now I make a much more concerted effort to avoid those types of words. That's a really good point. It, I think the first time you brought that up and we had that conversation, I became alarmed at how many things I had written about myself as being warm and fuzzy instead of I'm actually knowledgeable and I know stuff and I've accomplished things. Um, and you should know those things. I'm not just warm and fuzzy. There's a time and a place for warm and fuzzy, but it's usually not in, you know, an application for a scholarship or a fellowship or promotion. Yeah, I agree. Obviously. <laughs> That's, this hits that to me, I really like kind of big unwritten thing, right? I remember getting a request for one letter where the organization sent out like a one pager about gender bias and letters. And I had never seen an entity say like, beware and don't do these things as you submit letters to us on behalf of these students, you know, be thoughtful. And um, I was also like, I don't know, ashamed of all the words I saw that I knew I had used before. <laughs> right? Don't use lists, right? Um, so it was a lesson that, that um, maybe that, we can include that one pager in the resources with this podcast. Cause I think I have it in my lab documents. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it was really good. It's helpful. I still use it because um, I think, like you said, like our tendency sometimes is to just say things and and not, you know, we, we think we're thinking about people in a positive light as opposed to thinking about them as skilled, you know, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable people who, and thinking about, I guess, the, the what it's for as opposed to just saying positive things um, and how people receive those, I think, you know, um, this is the other thing. So I, I guess um, kind of a last question would be, and it's really kind of a packed question, but just thinking about additional tips, right? You talked a little bit about time frame, you know, giving plenty of time for your letter writer to write a good letter for you, not asking at the last minute um, and whether or not to offer a draft. But I'm wondering, you know, like, how do you select who you ask? I think that there's kind of some skill and strategy to that, perhaps, depending on what you're applying for. What do you, what do you think about that? So I'm going to just pick an example that might not be relevant to everyone, but it helps prove the point that I'm trying to make. So if you're, say, applying for a career development award, you know, so from the NIH, this would be typically like a five-year award that helps support 75 to 80% of your effort for protected time for your research. It's a mentored award, um, but you had to 
start to show that you've been productive before you apply. Um, if I were looking for letters of recommendation outside of my primary mentoring team, I would look um, for a letter from someone who is also an investigator who's been through something similar themselves, who can vouch for my effort, who could vouch for seeing me on a trajectory to become um, an independent investigator. And that's another thing of the content of the letter. I usually try to close out with some type of summary statement that says, I see this person as a future, whatever it is. So recently I wrote letters of recommendation for people who were going into residency. So if you're in medical school, you're applying for residency, usually in um, your you know later years of medical school uh, to go on and train in a specialty. Uh, with honesty, I said for two people that, you know, this person is, you know, very high functioning, um, very mature, is a team player, promoting others as they're coming through. Uh, I went through several, you know, examples and I said, I this is a person who's going to be a future division chief, you know, that I, I would love to be on faculty with somewhere. Um so trying to have someone who can set that stage of seeing you as whatever you deem a success in the future, I think makes it easier and a stronger letter. Um, it, you don't want to go to somebody who's too far removed from whatever you're applying to. Um, it's always nice if you choose someone to provide a letter who's also recognized in the field. Um, You know, I, I think that those are usually the key points. Do you think there's ever any strategy, like, you know, thinking like somebody from an institution or somebody external or like any other thoughts on or guidance on who to pick? I think it depends on what you're applying for. Um Usually, if you have someone outside of your institution providing a letter that's perceived as being stronger because it's recognition beyond your backyard. Um, so that's helpful. But, you know, if you. The other thing that uh, you should also keep in mind is you should on your list of you know requesting letters have some backup people. So you want to give someone the grace of being able to say no. It might be because of their time commitments. It may be because they actually don't agree, you know, that you are a good fit for whatever you're applying for and you don't want to get a lukewarm letter. So always leave someone that option to be able to say no and you not have a panic attack. How much time in advance do you think people should be asking for their letters? So if we go back to the K award um, mm -hmm. example, you know, you know, you're writing that K award months in advance. And I think you should start asking the letter writers then you don't have to provide the letter then, but at least ask them so that, you know, you have your list of people who will be providing letters and that you have the time to prepare those letters so that they can edit. I think asking someone the week before something is due is suboptimal. And um, 
I think it's more likely that, you know, someone who's asked with shorter notice will just politely say, I can't accommodate this with my schedule. Frankly, I need to be better about setting boundaries like that because often I will try to come up with a letter, but you know, usually in those types of timelines, the letter is not nearly as strong because I don't have the time. You know, the letter, you're not going to rewrite a letter as, as much as you rewrite a grant, but it's rare that you write one draft of a letter and that that's the letter that goes in. It's good to have some time and space to reflect on it and come back to it because you might think of something else that needs to be added. I think that is really good for particularly early career people to be aware of. It's not just one draft and, you know, and you're done. You really want to be able to craft it so it is as concisely and effectively communicating your strengths as possible um, and as closely aligned with the goals of whatever you're applying to. And in that, if it's a call for applications, they usually have specific instructions of things that they want to see highlighted in a letter. But another type of letter that will come up is a letter of promotion. So um, typically someone is not writing their own letters of support for promotion, um, but you might be writing a letter for someone else. So if you're asking for a letter and you're not drafting that letter to support your promotion, then organize your materials, like your CV or your summary of your body of work in a way that makes it easier for the letter writer to respond to your call from your university. So for example, some universities um, promote based on evaluating your activities in education, in research, and in say service. So organize your CV or your statement so that it's easy for someone to understand that. Um, same thing like when I write letters for promotion, once I see what a university wants, that's how I structure it. I usually set it up in those same topics because I want the committee for tenure and promotion to be able to quickly you know, ascertain that the person I'm providing the letter for has met uh, the criteria. You know, And I usually end the letter with that you know, type of statement, you know, after viewing your university's criteria, you know, Dr. Hoyt meets or exceeds the criteria for promotion. Um, and your university is lucky to have her, you know, something along those lines. But, um, you know, but it's amazing how few people read instructions or read the guidelines for what they're looking for in a letter. So take the time to do that, just like you do in applying for a grant. Or an award or anything else. I think laying, I like that idea of like, just whatever the award is, lay out the letter by the criteria of, of the position, grant, award, whatever it is. Yeah, make it clear to the reader. I agree. Um, we talked about, I think, you know, like one kind of formal resource and I think several informal gems for things to do and kind of um, look for strategies and such. Um, are there other resources that you think are good for writing letters um, would be one question. And I guess, is there um, any kind of etiquette or protocol around uh, requesting other letters to see, to use as like examples, you know, like asking a mentor for a copy of an exemplar letter or something like that to use when you're 
a drafting your own or writing for other people is that so um i'm not aware of any you know particular resources set aside you know like we usually have for like research tools or something like that um i mostly learned by doing um trial and error but what i usually do now and you've probably both experienced this is i'll provide a letter that I think is a good model to someone and say, you know, try to emulate this. Um, but usually you can turn to your mentor, you know, to ask for sample letters or somebody, you know, it might be in your peer group. It, it might be, you know, someone who is more senior to you, but I've never heard of someone saying they won't share a sample letter. Um, but I, I think really the best way to figure this out is by seeing successful letters and then trying to adapt it to whatever you're applying for or, you know, writing the letter for. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Um, I think, you know, as Catherine said, we're a little biased, but um, we both feel like uh, we've learned a ton from you and in terms of letter writing amongst other things, right? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. It's been a great discussion. Uh thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch.com.